Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. All life is sacred. God instructs us in His Word to choose life. What does that look like in our society today, where so many are divided? Join Doug, Kevin, and Arnold as they discuss how to have civil discourse in the midst of strong disagreements and yet stand for the truth. You'll learn about proven strategies that will equip you to impact your church and community. After the episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit a wordinseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. I'm really excited to have our guests today, Apostle Arnold Colbert and Kevin McGarry. They both serve with the Frederick Douglass Foundation and with the Douglass Leadership Institute. And the Douglass Leadership Institute is a national education and public policy organization with representatives and groups across the United States. The Douglass Leadership Institute's mission is to educate, equip, and empower faith-based leaders to embrace and apply biblical principles to life and in the marketplace. Apostle Culbreth, you've been in ministry nearly four decades, I believe, and serving in various capacities. We've met and interfaced in different apostolic and leadership gatherings over the decades and grown to greatly appreciate and admire you and respect your courage and your leadership. And you're always staying the course, even in the midst of the most difficult of times and challenges. Kevin McGarry, and I have seen each other at various events across the country. You also minister not just with the Douglas Leadership Institute, but also with If Every Black Life Matters. And so I'm going to have both of you share some of your journey here in a moment. But Arnold, why don't we start with you and just share a little bit about your journey and what brought you into where you are today and some of the things that you are doing today. Doug, thank you for having me on the program. And uh, I'm honored to be here uh, representing uh, multiple ministries and organizations. I simultaneously serve uh, in a threefold capacity. I am uh, on staff as a pastor at People's Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I live. It's a racially reconciling, generationally rich, life-giving church thriving in the heart of the city. And we have 35 nations worshiping and working in our church. Um, I also serve uh, as the National Director of uh, Ministry Engagement with the Douglas Leadership Institute, and I run a for-profit business, a business street, I guess is really a good way of putting it, that I founded called uh, Breath of Life. Uh, Breath of Life essentially is a hub, if you will, for the, the, the five talents that the Lord has given me, you know the parable of the talents. One guy's given one, one woman's given two, one person's given five. I happen to have been given five. So under breath of life is, uh, I'm an architectural engineer by degree, as well as theology degree. So um, architecture is under that. I still practice, just recently finished a hotel and event center design here in Liberty Township, which is a very affluent uh, suburb of Cincinnati. I'm a professional saxophonist, been playing for 48 years, and I do my music under uh, that. You can look me up on any digital platform where music is sold. Uh, Motivational speaking, pastoral consultation around the nation. We've been doing that for uh, quite a long time. And then my pro-life work is under breath of life when I'm not doing it in the capacity of Douglas Leadership Institute. So all that to say, uh, I'm a classic uh, underachiever. 
<laughs> people ask me off times well when do you sleep and I'm like what is that <laughs> but I do I sleep and I sleep well because God is in control he gives his beloved sleep as the word says but Doug uh, I'm just gonna uh, impress you you and I met uh, January 2010 at the call crisis at Grace Community Church uh, in Houston, Texas. That's right. That's right. I, I knew of you before that, but um, but I didn't really know you. So it's been an honor to know you uh, these past twelve years. I've watched you stay the course. You've never waned as far as your personal biblical convictions, even with all the divisiveness in the culture, even in all the challenges we're going through, even in this perfect storm since COVID. That so many things have come to try to divide and conquer the church families, our communities. How do you stay that course? And why do you do what you do that helps you stay that course? Well, let me see how um, comprehensively yet briefly I can, I can respond to that. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm thankful to God to have had uh, both parents uh, in my home, wonderful siblings. My father, the late Dr. Anderson Colbreth, was an incredible pastor, preacher, and quite frankly, apostle before the, the modern day church was even re-embracing the phrase. I mean, there were pastors and churches that he had under his oversight. Uh, it wasn't in a um, traditional structured uh, capacity like many associations and organizations are doing today, but he was doing it way back in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and 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 beyond, incredible man of God. May fifth will be um, the anniversary of his of his transition. He went home to be with the Lord May fifth, two thousand four. So I miss that guy every day. Our parents were amazing men and women of God. Just to give you an example of some of those formative years, uh, we would have every uh, Saturday was called family council in our home. And my father, prior to accepting the call to ministry, was superintendent of Sunday school. He was a deacon. And my parents have always been um, intensely vigilant about the word of God, the accuracy, the depth, our familiarity with it, even as small children. So family council every Sunday night, the first half hour or so was intended to focus on your Sunday school lesson. You had to come to family council with your Sunday school lesson, study, prepared, and they would drill us because when we went to our respective age-specific Sunday school classes, they wanted us to be ready to be able to give an answer for the reason that we uh, have the hope that we have to borrow scripture. And then the second half was on family matters. We would talk about family things going on. And there was even a point where we could proverbially put our parents on the hot seat. For example, if there was some disciplinary thing that they had done. I remember one time I couldn't go to a party uh, with my buddies. I was a young teenager and I was upset about that. And you could really air your grievances with our parents. I quickly discovered that there is a line that you can cross uh, in that uh, interrogation that uh, that reaped uh, quite stiff repercussions. But, <laughs> but it was an opportunity where we could just kind of voice and vent and it allowed us to be developed in our ability uh, to engage in civil discourse uh, beyond uh, family counsel. Hold that thought because something you just said, well, a mm. lot of what you said is so, I think, significant for us. And one is that you learn how to walk in civility, even in your public discourse. And I think that really has transcended into who you are today, that 
in the midst of realities of issues that could divide us, in the realities of authentic prejudices and racism, living in that culture, and yet the fundamentals of what and the foundations your father and your family gave you helped you to address and, and walk out those messages in a way that is reconciliatory, as well as bringing some element of hope and focus together rather than things that keep us divided. Go into that thought you're coming into, but then address that, because I think that's important. You know, family council every Saturday, what an incredible legacy that you uh, built upon from what was given to you, but it's helped you through that biblical fundamentals and foundations to help you in the public discourse and keeping civility, even in our strong disagreements. What I've appreciated about you and uh, with Kevin is that you've been able to continue to, even in strong disagreements with people against you or others, you've been able to hold on to this civility of truth that sets people free. So address some of that. I think that's great, Doug. I appreciate you bringing that up because our parents drilled us concerning that, to be able to listen to the viewpoints of others because you know, shockingly, you might learn something, even if they're wrong, right? Um, So we can listen to one another, and we can engage in civil discourse. And that's one of the things that breaks my heart today, even in the church, is that we've not learned how to really do that. And you really see that with vitriol uh, played out on social media every day, where everybody's just barking, everybody's just yelling, and whoever has the loudest voice or has the biggest following on social media is heard the most. I say to people all the time, I believe if we, and I'm talking to the church now, but if we would focus more on sowing seeds than winning arguments, I think we can move the ball much further and much faster uh, down the field. So it's about sowing seeds. Think about our own lives. How many times were there things said to us that over time, the Holy Spirit uh, unpacked in our lives, but the people that were hollering at us or in our face or whatever the case may be, you shut down. You didn't really receive from them. So if, if our words can be full of grace, as the Bible says, and seasoned with salt, it'll make it'll make much more a difference. That's um, some of the things when I first started 40 years ago in street ministry, and I would see people on the street corner screaming at people, I thought that doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit. Mm-hmm. So I began to, to say, let's speak the truth in love, but season with grace. Yeah. Speak the truth nonetheless, but season it with grace and begin to talk to people, have conversation. If we begin to scream at people, they put up a wall. But if we learn to engage them in the heart, the mind will begin to process and to receive the message that we want to bring. And so what you said is brilliant because that is so true that we can speak the truth in love and season it with grace. But we can speak the truth. We don't have to compromise our convictions, but we can represent our convictions in a way that begins to cause people to process. Yes, that's absolutely right. Let me shift gears for a moment and talk about life and a pro-life, I call it whole life, because I'm, I'm, I'm whole life from womb to tomb. And what that means is not just focusing on issues that are traditionally called uh, pro-life. Uh, many of my uh, brothers and sisters of the lighter hue uh, are, are brokenhearted because more people that look like me aren't involved in the movement. And in many instances, some of it has to do with our absence on matters that uh, appeal to them uh, when, you know, we've seen a different kind of a reaction with the brutal murder 
of uh, George Floyd, but heretofore, you know, up before that point, it's crickets coming from the non-African-American community on those kinds of issues. So we want African-Americans to be involved on the pro-life issue involving uh, children in the womb. And they're saying, wait a minute, our, our young men and, and young women are being gunned down in the street. Where are you on those issues? So I just want to put that there and let it simmer. But let me backtrack to uh, my home. My home was a very pro-life home. And we talked about life issues as early as I can remember. I remember very vividly January 22nd, 1973, when Roe versus Wade was passed and Walter Cronkite, you can still find that news coverage on YouTube, gave this tear-filled uh, broadcast announcing it to the nation and referred to it as a fateful day in our nation. Uh, we then unpacked that at the dinner table. Then when I got to be a seventh grader, my father, again, the late Dr. Anderson Colbreth, was the first African-American pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, to invite Dr. Jack Wilkie into our church to speak. Now, if people don't know who Dr. Jack Wilkie is, I encourage you to, to, to Google him, John C. Wilkie. They called him Jack. And uh, Dr. Wilkie, not single-handedly, but is largely responsible for starting the pro-life movement. He saw the anti-life pendulum shifting in our nation, left his medical practice in the late 60s, early 70s, tried to stop abortion from becoming legal, but was unsuccessful. But he founded Cincinnati Right to Life, where I live, Ohio Right to Life, also where I live, the National Right to Life, and the International Right to Life Federations. So Dr. Wilkie comes in, he gives a pro-life presentation. He didn't use a lot of gruesome pictures or anything like that. It was profound. He basically just showed you a baby that had just been born, beautiful, cuddly, low baby. Everybody, everybody's, oh, you know, and then he walks you all the way backward biologically to the single cell zygote that each of us started as. And he basically draws the conclusion with if it's a baby here, it's a baby here. The only difference being time, being size, being environment. And then he proverbially drops the mic. It was amazing. Fast forward to 2007. That same Dr. Jack Wilkie hires me to be his National Urban Outreach Director at Life Issues Institute, which was headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio. At the time, he wanted me to launch an initiative to reach the Black community on the issue of abortion, the number one killer of Black Americans, higher than all other causes combined. And God gave me in a dream protecting Black life, which the, the website still exists, protectingblacklife.org. Backtrack to 1985, I married a woman who we've been married 37 years now, uh, his post-abortive. Uh, post uh, my beautiful wife, Barbara, and I'll stop after this. My beautiful wife, Barbara, we were dating while I was in architecture school in Dayton, Ohio. Little old lady in my apartment building, Alice Moore, who's gone on to be with the Lord, was always pestering me about going and hearing her pastor. And I was always telling her about my dad and his preaching. She said, oh, you got to hear my preacher. And she's on me like relentlessly, Doug, every day. So I finally went really to shut her up. Church wasn't foreign to me. I was born and raised in church, but I went. And that's my now father-in-law uh, at that church. So I'm glad I listened to her. But my father-in-law, uh, Bishop John Henry Buffington in Dayton, Ohio, has been pastoring his church for 62 years. He's 92 years old, and he's still pastoring and preaching. So that's the kind of stock I come from. But my wife and I started falling in love, and I'm mentioning marriage several times, and she never responded. 
I was curious what the issue was. We're sitting in the car in Dayton, Ohio, after a movie and dinner date night. And she said to me, she said, Arnold, you know, you've mentioned marriage several times. And, and, and if we're going to go forward, then, then there's something you need to know. And I got really nervous. I don't generally get nervous. I've knocked around a fair amount in the streets. I'm a United States Army veteran. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a ruffian, but I'm not a wimp either. Uh, but I got nervous. And, and she said, there's something I need to tell you. I didn't know, Doug, if there was going to be, she was going to say there was another man because she hadn't responded with any of my statement. I didn't know if it was going to be a Jerry Springer moment. And she was going to say she used to be a man. I didn't know what was getting ready to get, but I'm looking for the Adam's apple, you know, <laughs> what's, what's, what's getting ready to happen here. And she said to me, she said, two years before we met, while she was attending Central State University, which is a historically black university here in Ohio, in Wilberforce, Ohio, ironically enough, she had gotten pregnant by a gentleman and, uh, and chose abortion. She did not want to uh, bring shame on her father's ministry. Uh, she didn't want to tell the young man and have him tell what, say what so many young men say that, you know, it's not my baby, you know, kind of a thing, even though he was the only one she was with. And it was one of her professors that took her to the Planned Parenthood in Columbus, Ohio, our state's capital, and she had that abortion. So we're there in Dayton, Ohio, in the car after that date night. And she said, Arnold, she said, I still remember the sounds in that place. You could hear the suction machine in other rooms as you're about to have your procedure. She said, I can, I can still smell the smells in that place. She said this, and it gives me chills every time I say it. She said, I'm damaged goods. She said, if you don't wanna go forward, I would understand. And I loved her and I had already been impacted by life and truth and pro-life. Um, so we married and here we are years and years later. And here's where I'll stop. She worked for the city of Cincinnati for 32 years. She went through forgiven and set free, got gloriously released from that shame. And if there's anybody listening to this broadcast, male or female, and you've had an abortion, I want you to know that God's grace is available. He loves you. His forgiveness is standing on the ready for you to reach out. First John 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So she gave this simple, it wasn't even a prayer. It was just kind of a whispered thought. She said, I would like to do something now that I'm retired and help women with my story. Practically, not even three weeks later, she gets a call from Elizabeth New Life Center Pregnancy Center here in Cincinnati, Ohio to be their newest client counselor. So every day, part-time, she's sharing her testimony. That's where she is even as we speak. And the center that she works at, they have eight centers and I'll be their network of centers keynote speaker for their gala in September of this year uh, because we brought many black pastors to connect with that pregnancy center and get the pregnancy center and its resources into their churches. I'm so excited for the things God is doing. You probably can't tell I'm excited. But, <laughs> but well, I'm excited. It's contagious because again, watching you over the years at a distance for a period of time, but also getting to know you, the messages never changed. But even in how you presented the healing balm of the Lord, even in the midst of things like this, I think is a testament. That's how we need to uh, be an, a tangible expression of Christ to a world that maybe doesn't even agree with us. But if we express Christ in very real and tangible ways without changing our convictions, I think that uh, people begin to respect us and begin to process what they see in us. I, 
you had mentioned different voices. Uh, Alveda King, who's been a friend of all of ours, will be one of my guests uh, coming up in a few weeks. And of course, the late Bishop Roy Cossey in the Fifth Ward of Houston, the Bloody Fifth Ward, known used to be the Bloody Fifth, and now it's totally changed. Raised nine children. He and his wife had nine children. And every one of them, though, on different political spectrums, have a deep respect for the foundations that God had given through their father to them to be reconcilers. One is professor at Texas Southern University. Another is a community relations liaison for the, one of the most listened to contemporary Christian radio stations in America out of Houston. And it's amazing how the foundations that are laid in family that will last a lifetime. And even if we may be on different political platforms for whatever reason, if we keep presenting the truth and love season with grace, people begin to come back to the centrality of the cross and, and get back to the foundation that God has given us. I'm going to come back in those. I'm sure you'll be percolating some thoughts. I want to get to Kevin. What has gotten you involved in what you're doing at Frederick Douglass, but also with every Black Life Matters? Because that was interesting. We saw each other, I think, in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, you gave me one of your shirts. I'm thinking, okay, that's going to create a lot of conversations. But you two have, have stayed the course of your faith, but also in expressing the importance of unity of the body of Christ, but specifically uh, addressing the area of the Black culture and what challenges have come, regardless of political persuasion, what challenges have come for us to stay the course, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, and finish our faith. So, Kevin, you, you're you not a, just a, an author and a public speaker, but you're also a facilitator and teacher. I mean, I've seen you in ministry settings all over the country. What has engaged your heart to give you the passion for what you're doing and some of your journey as well. Thank you, Doug, for uh, having me. Uh, it's very difficult going behind somebody like Apostle <laughs> uh, Colbreth. I mean, that brother, man, I mean, he's an intellectual, he's an artist, he's, man, he's got the whole thing going. He, he you know, he it's just God's grace is just on that brother, mm -hmm. just working him. Well, we're going to have uh, to have you guys back so I can have Arnold get your saxophone going for us. Yeah, for real. That brother, boy, I tell you what, that's, that's just, uh, I'm just honored to be here with him. Uh, just a mighty man of God and just, uh, just a great pillar of strength for us all. But my journey is, uh, is one that I started in, in San Francisco, was born and raised in, in Hunter's Point, abject poverty. Hunter's Point is, is if any of you know, it's a, it's a project housing that was there. Uh, where the Black Panthers uh, really started uh, in the 1960s. And that's where I was, you know, where I was born. And, and uh, my younger years, I was there and then my parents moved out. So my father was an alcoholic, uh, runaway alcoholic. My mother was a mighty woman of God who prayed him into the kingdom ultimately. But all of my formative years, my father was, um, you know, he, he came home every night, which was very, very important for me. But he was he was just out of his mind, you know. So, but when I went off to college, God somehow just worked mom's prayers, and uh, you know, to and and made that brother without any AA or anything else. He just did cold turkey. He had no no taste for alcohol anymore. And uh, today, to this very day, he's a mighty man of God with my mother, sixty two years, still living in San Francisco, and he's a real estate broker in the city, multiple apartment buildings, and you know how much real estate is in San Francisco, so you could imagine how much he's worth and how God has elevated him to such an extreme. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. So I was raised in that environment. I was raised as, as a boy from the hood, you know, who did all kind of crazy stuff. But because dad was home every night, 
I came home and I walked, I towed the line in front of them and I, I got, you know, pretty decent grades, pretty good grades. And then I went to San Jose State, uh, got a sociology degree, um, and then, you know, got married. And when my wife and I got married, the Lord really began to speak with us uh, directly and really wanted us to begin to look at all the domains of our lives. We were being discipled in, in, in that time, and we, we opened up our, our hearts and our minds to really look at every domain and really apply the Word of God to every single domain, whether it was convenient or inconvenient. And in that process, the Lord had us really look at our, our civic engagement. It doesn't happen for everybody like this, but for us, it did. My wife is a psychology major and very practical, and I'm a sociology, you know, very practical. And uh, we took a look at uh, the platforms uh, for civic engagement, and we tried to sort of reconcile our tradition. She was born and raised inner city uh, Detroit. I'm born and raised inner city San Francisco. And we tried to reconcile our traditions with how we were voting with the word of God. And it, we couldn't, it couldn't fit for us. You know, he really just lifted the veil and said, look, here it is. So we started to vote differently. We started to be differently. And God started to move differently upon us. We started to hear the voice of God more readily because we were in alignment in all the domains of our life. We had laid it all domains at the altar and said, look, everything that we do as a couple is going to be filtered through the word of God. And because of that, he honored that, I believe. And he gave me multiple books to write, uh, all the books I write, and I'm on my fifth one now, I'll be releasing it in a few months. All of them are Holy Spirit inspired. I'm not a writer. I can write, but it's it's literally Holy Spirit doing the writing. So for me, it's a flow. It's not a, hmm, let me research this. What do I write? No, no, it's, you know, the Lord gives me an assignment and I just, you know, it's a flow. When I see Holy Spirit working in me in ways that I cannot explain, that I cannot, you know, uh, in the natural, try to reconcile or try to tell somebody how Holy Spirit does what he does in my life. That gives me the impetus to keep going and to know that God is real and to know that every day there's new mercies that we should be tapping into or that we can be tapping into. And, um, and, and so that's sort of, sort of kept us going. Now, the, the way I've gotten involved with, uh, with starting this, Every Black Life Matters, is we saw what happened, you know, the murder of George Floyd and uh, what happened with the streets, with black and brown businesses being burned to the ground. Really, what was appalling was churches going out with Black Lives Matter uh, and pastors encouraging their parishioners to do the same. My co-founder and I, we realized that, look, there's a lot of people within the body of Christ that are truly sincerely intended to try to help Black life. When they go home and their emotions calm down, they're going to be looking for a righteous and faithful alternative to BLM. Because when they go to BLM's website, they're going to see that they're Marxist, that they're anti-family, that they're anti-father, that they're anti-school uh, you know, school choice, that they're anti uh, everything that is righteous, just, and faithful. We want it to be that alternative. And so we started Every Black Life Matters. Now, some people say, well, isn't that divisive in and of itself? And we say, no, uh, really what we're saying is all lives matter. Every life matters. Except they look at it and they say, well, come on, how are you saying every life matters? You say every black life. And we say, look, um, when Margaret Sanger said, we don't want the word to get out, but we want to fully exterminate the Negro population. Uh, she didn't say the Negro and white, the Negro and uh, Cuban, the Negro and Hispanic, the Negro and Asian. She said Blacks. 
She said, I want to exterminate Blacks. All lives matter. And if every life matters, then we have to address the specific strategic strategy to exterminate Blacks first. So we could say, look, this is my commitment that all lives matter equally. Blacks should be born at the same rate that everybody else is. We have all other ethnicities being born at this rate and Blacks born at this rate because of what Margaret Sanger did. For us, it's not a statement of superiority. No, for us, it's a statement of equality. So we say every Black life matters and it'd be better if you just put T-O-O in your mind's eye at the end of it. All we're saying is every Black life matters too. So the other thing that we've done here is if you see uh, the little baby's feet in here, from the womb to the tomb is, is our logo. So from conception to the grave in every phase of Black life, that matters. And especially if you're for every life mattering or all life mattering, that's, we're saying the same thing. We just want to address the specific tangible genocide that's targeted at the moment at the Black community. So we bring people along that way. So we are supremely pro-life. And because if we're going to ever address reconciliation, racism, and all those things, we have to look at the root of where those things come from. Fundamentally today, the number one systemically racist organization is Planned Parenthood. By definition, it's, it's not even close. So instead of you know, us getting hysterical with hair on fire and talking about systemic racism is everywhere, if you're sincere, can you please just address the systemic racism that we all see? We see the founder's words, we see the location of the clinics, we see all of these that align with systemic racism. And yet nobody's here is on fire about that. Yet we have the Supreme Court trying to fix broken laws that have plagued us and have been a scourge on the black community and really all community, all communities, but disproportionately black for the past multiple, you know, almost five decades. And then we have people with their hair on fire out in front of the Supreme Court today, you know, going crazy. And, and, and all, all the Supreme Court is doing is saying, look, these are constitutionally, uh, constitutionally proven tenets that we have to make our declarations based on. When they made the decision in 73, it was unconstitutional. It was unrighteous. It was unfaithful to the, to the supremacy of the Declaration and Constitution. All we're doing is fixing that. You had Ruth Bader Ginsburg that said a few years ago that, look, we, we know that you know, uh, the women's rights movement and abortion is not about women's rights. It's about getting rid of those we don't want too many of. This is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her words. They know what's happening here. And so all we're doing with this, with this new, hopefully this new Supreme Court is trying to fix the scourge that we all have to face now. The reason why we have so much judgment on America, in my opinion, is because we've allowed so much bloodshed. And this is biblically founded. When you do, when you shed innocent blood, at some point, you've got to, God's going to hold you accountable for those deaths. And so we're just trying to fix that. So anyway, every Black Life Matters is about that. And then, of course, we, we have a number of things that we stand for, school choice, uh, free markets and capitalism, fatherhood, the nuclear family, all of those things 
are you know fundamental to trying to correct um, so many of the things that are just off kilter within the black community. So I know I've been going on a while here. Doug. Well, no, I think you have a question are, for me. <laughs> yeah, these are great points. I don't know if you know a friend of mine named Otto Kelly. Otto has the Dad Academy in Reno, Nevada, and he also is the director of a couple of the crisis pregnancy centers. As a man, his family is fully engaged. In fact, his son is a worship leader now in Houston. And uh, But Otto was a former football player, et cetera, and God really ministered to him about family that moved him into the crisis pregnancy arena. And uh, and I know between him and I know with, uh, I know uh, Apostle Culbreth, you were talking about earlier that uh, the film uh, Mahafa 21, which is brilliant because it really lays the history of what's really behind the, uh, many today in, in nefarious ways that are trying to promote the... Um, the, the the killing of not just babies, but in particular babies of color and especially black babies. And and we see the rooting of that and yet people aren't waking up. But Mahafa 21 is a brilliant film that really articulates the history of the connection to, to Hitler, Nazi Germany, to the killing of babies, in particular babies of color. And so it kind of lays the history of the Mar Margaret Sanger, as you quoted there, Kevin, and some of her words of why she was doing what she was doing. And I think, uh, I think Arnold, you said you, you gave out um, uh, 10,000 plus of those Mahapa 21s. And I know I've given out many and I, Kevin, you have as well. Uh, I think it's important for people to not just say why they're for or against something, but really dig in a little bit and, uh, and to begin to research some of the, the foundations because what is foundational will bear fruit, good or bad. And then the other thing you mentioned, I think is important is those who tell the story, I believe defines the narrative. So those who tell the story define the narrative and create the history. The issue for us is that we need to be telling our story. We need to be, we need to be defining the narrative. We need to be the ones telling the story, defining the narrative. So the history is not left to those who want to rewrite certain things, but and create their own narrative. We need to create the narrative of the Lord together as the body if we're going to see change in our in our society in our generation in our culture um so Otto, as i was saying is a friend he's uh, uh doing incredible things with the whole family units and then a part of that is addressing the area of of being for life from the womb into the tomb you know you both of you had mentioned earlier and i want to address this because especially i think the timing of our recording of this uh, of just yesterday uh, and we're recording this on um, on Tuesday, the third uh, of May. But on May second, we heard that there was a leak from the uh, at the Supreme Court uh, about their their rulings could be coming down that they're going to be saying uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade, and uh, not for sure if it's for real, but if it's just creating uh, more divisiveness, the tail wagging the dog instead of dealing with the real root issues. Uh, the point is is that it is something on the minds of many people and those on the far, far spectrums are trying to create an imbalance in this perfect storm to keep us from focusing on the real issues of bringing change and healing. And I think both of you alluded to the fact that the woman of the tomb, so at the end of the day, it's not about equality. It's not been about choice or rights. In fact, the Bible tells me, I give you life and death, choose life. So in other words, the Lord already gives us the answer. But we see that now in Maryland and California, other places, we're not talking about a woman's rights. We're talking about the right now 
at the point of birth into so many days, allowing the medical profession, follow the science, but how do you trust all these people who are giving us so many different uh, statements about what the science is in various arenas, and then yet allowing a baby to be born? It started out, abortion was wrong, then it was like the first trimester, then all the way to birth, and now after birth, what have we come to, regardless if you're Democrat, Republican, independent, if you're not politically involved, the point is any society that has come to a point of needing to dis discard their children on the altar of, of, of convenience, then I think we've we got ourselves in big trouble. And, and I think, Kevin, you mentioned even about, you know, the judgment of God. I mean, God doesn't proactively want to judge us, but he's, he pulls his hand away because we basically reject God. So how do we address this current issue of how to, uh, to articulate this narrative that is biblical at the same time realizing the atrocity. Isaiah 1 says, all of your raising of your hands to pray. I, I want to address the church more than the world, raising of all your hands to pray. But God says, I don't, I don't honor it. I'm not going to hear it because right. you've allowed the shedding of innocent blood. You've allowed injustices. You've allowed, uh, you're not taking care of the widows and the orphan. But he starts with saying, because you've allowed the shedding of innocent blood. So how do we address this issue that where we've been sacrificing our children on the altar of Baal? That's a great question, uh, Doug. I'd love to take a stab at that, if I may. At the Douglas Leadership Institute, we took a simple but powerful scripture, and that is Jeremiah 1 and 5. It's a very familiar passage of scripture to probably all of us on this call. Uh, it's God speaking to Jeremiah, and he says to him, he said, I, I knew you in your mother's womb, and I formed you and I called you to be a prophet to the nations in that simple but powerful uh, passage of scripture. Again, that's Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. And in that verse, we see three life-affirming keys. One of the first things we see is the purview of God. He sees all, he knows all, he knew us and saw us even in our mother's womb. The second thing we see is personhood. God refers to Jeremiah as a person. He said, I saw you, Jeremiah, in your mother's womb, not a clump of cells. That's a talking point that the abortion industry has come up with that is, is just a clump of cells, a product of conception. Biologically speaking, we're all clumps of cells. Some of us are just bigger clumps than others, uh, but we see the purview of God. We see the personhood, and we also see the purpose of God because he called him to be a prophet to the nations even in his mother's womb. So we at Douglas Leadership Institute took that verse by the, the leading of the Holy Spirit and launched this explosive project called the Jeremiah 1 and 5 Project. I encourage everyone to go to that to our website, DL Institute for Douglas Leadership Institute, dlinstitute.org forward slash Jeremiah. Again, that's dlinstitute.org forward slash Jeremiah, and you'll see everything that I just shared with you. And we're asking uh, our primary purpose, going back to Kevin McGarry's sharing, and thank you, Kevin, for just laying it out the way you did. But one of the things we are unashamedly, unapologetically trying to do at DLI is to reverse the curse that was launched by Margaret Sanger with this Jeremiah 1 and 5 project. So our primary target audience is African-American pastors. Now I say primary, but I'm not saying exclusive. 
we welcome all people of goodwill. As a matter of fact, when you go to our webpage that I just gave you, dlinstitute.org forward slash Jeremiah, you're going to see three designations on there to join with us, stand with us. First one you're going to see says, I'm a pastor. I have the authority to speak on behalf of my church. You tick that box. Second box is I'm a pastor. I don't have authority to speak on behalf of my church, but I will speak to my leadership team. The third designation is for any and, and everybody that doesn't fit those two qualifications. And that is, I'm not a pastor and I'm being facetious, but nor do I play one on TV, but I, I believe what these brothers are saying and I stand with them. We're, what are we asking people to do? Three things. These all come out in peas. I'm a preacher. I love literation. So you'll have to forgive me. But the first one is to pray, pray for an end to abortion. I speak in colleges, churches, conferences, pregnancy center banquets all around the globe. And I mean that literally. And, and when I ask for a show of hands of people that pray today, whatever day I'm speaking on, for an end to abortion, very few hands go up. Do we believe that abortion should end? Yes. Do we believe, are we working to stop it? Yes. But did you pray today? Prayer is one of the most underutilized weapons in our warfare as believers is prayer. So pray for an end to abortion. Secondly, to preach and teach that life comes from God, it's sacred, and that it should be protected. If you're listening and you're not a preacher, you can preach via your social media. You can tweet and get the message out. So don't get stuck on that traditional term, preach. We're just basically talking about share. The third thing is to promote the project by telling somebody else. When a pregnancy center director, and I'm not minimizing the work of my brothers and sisters out there, when a right to life president speaks to a pastor about the life issue, it doesn't have the same ring in his head and in his heart as when he's talking pastor to pastor. I mean, when you've golfed together, when you've hunted together, if you're a hunter, if you've vacationed together, your families, and you're just sitting across with a cup of coffee talking about this pivotal issue, it has a very different ring. I'll share these two other points and then I'll stop. Planned Parenthood, as Kevin so eloquently put it, the leading promoter and provider of abortion says that by age 45, one in every three women in America will have had at least one abortion. If that's the case, and we believe that number's low, but if that's the case, then they're sitting, Doug, and silently suffering in our church pews. And with the exception of Mary, the mother of Jesus, there's a man involved in every pregnancy. So men suffer from abortion too, they just suffer differently. We're so pleased at DLI that the Church of God in Christ, the largest African-American Pentecostal denomination in the country is our strategic partner on this project. And watch this now, a John 10 and 10 says, the thief, the devil comes for no other reason than to steal, to kill and to destroy. And then the second, the other side of that coin says, I come, Jesus says, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In November of 2019, at the Church of God in Christ Holy Convocation in St. Louis, Missouri, we were there, Douglas Leadership Institute, we were there, unanimously passed a pro-life resolution as a denomination. It was then under the presiding Bishop Charles E. Blake. Now that there's a new Church of God in Christ, presiding Bishop J. Drew Sheard, he has renewed 
the Church of God in Christ commitment to the Jeremiah 1-5 project, if you go to our website, dlinstitute.org forward slash Jeremiah, you'll get that entire uh, resolution there because I was it was very important to me to put that there for people to download. When they unanimously passed that decision in November of 2019, that's a pro-life resolution by the Church of God in Christ, fast forward to March of 2020, the next year, COVID hits. And the Church of God in Christ gets hit with deaths at an exponential rate beyond any other segment of the body of Christ. Why was that? I dare to believe, Doug, that that was the devil's anti-life response to the pro-life resolution that the Church of God in Christ released. I mean, they need eight to operate as a denomination and they had 15 leaders on whatever that senior leadership council is called. Well, it was whittled down to the eight and they were really concerned about their solvency as a denomination and how to operate and all of that. And God has, has brought them out and everything. But I'm telling you, the devil takes this very seriously, the shedding of innocent blood. And it's my prayer that more men and women of God of all persuasions would begin standing up for life. Well, I don't want to offend the people in my church. Uh, well, you know, uh, they're waiting. My wife says if she would have heard from her preacher a word about life, she probably wouldn't have chose abortion. And I hate to say it, but her preacher was her father, my father-in-law. Bishop John Henry Buffington. So when we speak out, okay, pastor, you're not ready to preach a full-fledged pro-life message. Pro-lifers, stop falling out of your chair when a pastor says that. Let's bring them along gradually. You give an altar call at the end of your sermons and you list things. If you're a drunkard, if you're a dope addict, if you're this, that, or the other, God can forgive you. The foot of the cross is level. Just add to that list. If you've had an abortion, and I'm telling you, I've spoken to hundreds upon hundreds of men and women across this country that God used that simple, strategic, powerfully anointed statement to set them free. Because of the shedding of innocent blood, many of them deceptively believe that I can be forgiven for everything else I've done, but I can't be forgiven for this sin of abortion. And the devil is a lie. God wants to raise up an army that looks a lot like Revelation 12 and 11. We overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Mm. Looking to help, to heal, to lift up men and women of God impacted by abortion right from the church. And we need the mouthpieces of pastors to help usher that in. You made some great points here, and I'm going to have you all pray in a second. Kevin, give us your thoughts as well. You know, when initially was meeting with Dr. Timothy Johnson, who founded Frederick Douglass Foundation, and of course, Dean Nelson now is uh, heading that up. It's never changed. The, the core values have never changed. And it's really a voice that I believe we need to undergird, hold up the arms of voices that are courageous and willing to say, look, we, we are speaking out of conviction, not because it's, it's a convenient thing to do. And I know that many have paid the price for standing for what they believe and for living out your conviction. So thank you for that. Apostle yes. Carl Holbreth has always just, he's just done a phenomenal work for Douglas Leadership Institute and for pastors around the country on the Jeremiah 1-5 project. Uh, there's constant prayer around that anointed ministry. Uh, every Sunday, uh, multiple times during the week, uh, certain smaller groups, but every Sunday, a larger group 
that he leads with others within the Douglas Leadership Institute to cover that ministry and prayer, and it is having a profound effect. Um, one of the things that I'd like to add is, as it relates to any pastors or ministers that are involved, just another data point for you to look at. In Genesis 3, 15, I've written a book on this because it was, this is the, this is, I wrote a book called The War on Women from the Root to the Fruit. This is the root of where everything started. Genesis 3.15, if you recall, it was God giving uh, Eve and the serpent their consequences for uh, their sin. And he says, and there will be enmity. Most translations say enmity, but a lot of translations say war as well. If you really do the strong translation for what enmity in that context is, it's war, it's chaos, it's hate, whatever. There will be enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman and her offspring. What's interesting is God didn't just stop and be enmity between you and the woman. You guys are the ones who did this. Is it specifically he calls out the offspring? There is a strategy and a tactic that the hordes of hell are right now have been fighting from the beginning of time to stump out offspring. A lot of this you know, comes from, of course. Uh, the demonic realm, understanding that Jesus would be born of a woman and all of that. So this, this ties into revelation, it, it, but it's, but the fact is it's, it's, it's an eternal sort of war or chaotic war between humanity and the demonic realm that is coming through the birthing of humanity through the woman. And so Satan's war has always been, look, I want to completely jack every child in every generation. If you look at Moloch sacrifice, you look at Baal's sacrifices, you look at, and they were horrible sacrifices. These weren't just, hey, you know, this, this woman is about to have a baby, let's throw in a This is after the kids were full grown, this is infanticide. After they were, you know, children, they're throwing them in the fire in, in the Moloch sacrifices and then in the Baal sacrifice. I mean, just the most horrendous way to stomp out life that you could imagine was being done and is still being done dismemberment and then selling of the body parts. This is part of that, the same, it's connected. And so for, for all of us in ministry, please don't dismiss the Jeremiah 1-5 initiative and Douglas Leadership Institute, or the fact that there is literally a war being fought against humanity by way of, you know, trying to eliminate, exterminate all children. And so that's the fight. And so we, we really have to be really ultra sensitized to this. So many people in ministry want to give, uh, you know, want to say, look, I don't want to delve into that. If you're in a spiritual fight, if you're in spiritual warfare, which is what we do, this is this is part of the battle. You can't say, you can't ignore it and say, look, I, well, I don't go there. What? This is part of spiritual warfare. This is it. So let's, let's gird ourselves up and get in the fight. Great points. The devil may not know exactly that moment, of God's word in Genesis, but even the times of Moses, he saw the stirring of the dust, so to speak, and tried to kill the children. And then, of course, the days of John the Baptist and, the, and Jesus coming in an earthen vessel here on earth and, uh, and tried to kill the babies. And so I believe that just like John the Baptist being the forerunner to Jesus's birth and coming, that there is a corporate generation, a corporate anointing for a prophetic generation emerging to prepare the way for the ultimate coming of the Lord. And I believe the enemy, the devil, sees the stirring of the dust and again is trying to kill babies 
before they're even born or after they're born now. And I, I believe it said it is a spiritual attack, a spiritual warfare that we cannot just have a blind eye to. We need to address them first in our own personal knee posture so that we can have, as Arnold said earlier, a civility in our public discourse, but we must be passionate about our convictions and what we believe. Kevin and Arnold, would both of you just take the last minute and pray for those who will be listening? Pray for us to be able to, to stay in the fight as you have and to be the men and women of God that God's called us to be at every level. Amen. Absolutely. I'm going to make one quick statement and then I'll pray. I was speaking to a pastor one time, Black pastor, large, affluent church. He said to me, if I start to address this issue, I'm going to lose members. And he was talking about good, faithful tithing and offering, giving members. And the Holy Spirit gave me a response in that second. It bypassed my brain and just came straight out of my mouth. And I said to him, sir, if you don't address this issue, you're already losing members. It might not be this generation but the next generation. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for uh, forums like this. God, thank you for Doug Stringer and thank you for Transformed Leaders uh, broadcast. Thank you for these men and women uh, of God that are on this call, Father. God, we thank you for giving us a revelation concerning life. We thank you for allowing us to be born, oh God, naturally and then born again spiritually, Father. Life matters. Oh God, I lift up uh, pastors and preachers, religious leaders all over this land and country, oh God. And I pray, Father God, that just like Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter one, who refused to uh, obey the king's edict, Father, to kill the Hebrew babies at the birthing stool, oh God, that they would get a backbone, oh God, that they would stand up in the spirit of Elijah and they would trumpet truth regarding life, oh God. We take authority over fear right now, Father. You've not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God, we lift up the Supreme Court. We lift up the justices, oh God, and we lift up this flashpoint in our nation, this Kairos moment. God, would you end abortion in America, oh God, in Jesus' name. And, and Father, we just uh, thank you for everything that has been said and everything that's been done in this uh, meeting today. We ask that you would superintend over every heart and every mind that would view this, that has already participated in this, and that you would dictate uh, their way forward. A lot of people may be confused about how to, you know, interweave or intertwine this conversation that's so yeah. important to you into their existing relationships. But we ask that you, Father God, mm. would superintend their motives and, and give them the, uh, the desire, the ambition, the strength, Lord, to press forward and to stand for you, even in this area uh, that is contentious and, and, and uh, divisive. It shouldn't be, but it is because of what the enemy is doing. But we ask, Father, that you would just uh, allow Holy Spirit to, who teaches all things, to teach us going forward how to engage culture, how to engage parishioners, how to engage our other pastor networks, how to engage on this subject that is so critical to your vision and purpose for humanity. So Father, let your will be done as we go forth, be with us. And we just thank you in advance for everything that you're doing. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. 
please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.